Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Free Lutheran Church Sermon Archive. It's our hope that this message would encourage you in your faith and would help you to get to know God's love, grace, and mercy in a personal way. If you have any questions on the sermon or would like to know more about Maranatha, please visit us on the web at maranathafreelutheran.com or call our church office at 218-498-2808. Thank you, and may God bless. Well, again, good morning. Pastor, I mentioned during the announcement time, Pastor Lloyd is on uh, vacation this week, so you get uh, me uh, leading and, and preaching as well this morning. There are a lot of things you do not anticipate uh, when you become parents. Right? And those of you who are parents will, will probably understand this well. When you became a parent, you would figure that you'd probably have some sleepless nights with a new baby, right? You knew you would have diapers to change, spit up to clean. Uh, you probably anticipated the dirt and the mud that they would track in the house as they grew older, right? And um, you, you knew you would probably have some sleepless nights as they became teenagers and broke curfew, right? <laughs> These are things that are common to the experience of parenthood, and so you expect them. But then there are those things that you, uh, you don't anticipate saying when you become parents. Right? Uh, just the other day, uh, Liz said to one of our children who will, uh, who will remain anonymous, she said, don't use the vacuum cleaner as a bow and arrow. <laughs> you never thought you would utter those words in the same sentence, right? Don't use the vacuum cleaner as a bow and arrow. <laughs> One thing I didn't anticipate when I became a parent was the sheer number of rocks that would accumulate in our house. Not just little pebbles, right, from, from shoes, but, but actual rocks. And I went around the house this week um, picking up rocks <laughs> from, uh, from various places throughout our house. Not from rock collections that they have in special jars or anything like that. Um, I think this one I kicked on the bathroom floor. Don't ask me why. Um, this one here was painted at one point in time and is now in our house. But all of these rocks randomly sitting on shelves, sitting on um, countertops. Uh, some of them very pretty, some of them not so pretty, right? Um, <laughs> rocks. What you or I would see as ordinary my kids see as extraordinary, and they cannot wait to show them to me, and thus they bring them into the house, right? Each rock is special and different and unique, one of a kind. Each rock is something unparalleled to offer to the collection of rocks, and thus, again, it makes it into our house. <laughs> We're going to come back to this, uh, to this collection of rocks and this imagery a little bit later on, but I want you to kind of keep that in your head as we go through this morning's service. And again, this morning we're continuing in uh, the book of First Peter. We're going to be in chapter 2 this morning. So if you haven't found that in your Bibles, I'd encourage you to do so. First Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. And as we read this text this morning, listen for this truth. Uh, the spiritual temple built on the rejected Christ is being filled with God's people. Okay, First Peter chapter 2, uh, if you are able, would you stand this morning as I read out of reverence for the word of the Lord. Reading in Jesus' name, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 
For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, Lord, again, I give you thanks for the day and for the opportunity to gather together with fellow Christians, coming away from the cares and the concerns of the world and spending time in your word. Lord, we pray that today you would meet us where we are and all the distractions of life, the things that we have going on. Put those to the side, and Lord, may your word take priority. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. The, the outline for this sermon isn't your, your traditional one, two, three bullet points or a, a catchy word or a phrase that all start with the same letter, although those, those are kind of fun sometimes to come up with. Uh, the outline is a summary. If I were to boil down these seven or so verses of First Peter chapter 2 into one sentence, this would be it. The spiritual temple built on the rejected Christ is, is being filled with God's people. And so this morning, we're going to look at that sentence phrase by phrase. The spiritual temple built on the rejected Christ is being filled with God's people. And so first, the spiritual temple. In the Old Testament, the Jewish nation had been God's people, right? He chose them to be the ones that would bring the Messiah, the Savior, to the world. They were the ones who had the law, the Torah. They had the temple, the place where the Lord dwelt. They were to be light to the nations, sharing the good news of the coming Savior with the world. But they failed miserably. They became arrogant, haughty that they were the chosen ones. But when Christ came, he changed everything. No, no longer did you have to be a part of this special tribe of people or adhere to certain rules. All could and did become a part of the true spiritual temple. And following Christ, you became a part of his body, the, the, the church, capital C, church. Uh, the church has become God's people and God's place in the world. You are his temple. And Peter says in verse 4 that we come to Christ Jesus, the living stone. Uh, The reference to Jesus being a stone has has deep roots in the Old Testament. And Peter here, even in our verses here in chapter 2, goes on to quote from Isaiah 28, verses we read this morning, Psalm 118 and Isaiah 8, that all talk of the the coming Messiah being like a, a stone in one way or another. The cornerstone was the the first stone that was laid in a building that was set in the foundation of that building. And it was the most important stone that was set. It had to be a perfect stone. All of its corners were cut. Its lines were perfectly square and straight. And from that one stone, the builders would measure and and, uh, line up all the other stones, making sure everything was flush to that one cornerstone. 
Maybe uh, one of the most vivid imageries uh, that were given of the Messiah being like a stone comes from the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream about this statue being made of lots of metals, gold and silver, bronze, iron, and then clay and iron mixed together. And Daniel says that those metals all represented the different kingdoms that would arrive on the world's stage, each one weaker than the one before. King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, his dream, something wild happened. There's this stone that was cut by no human hands and it came from heaven and it strikes the statue on its feet and it breaks it into pieces. And then Daniel says this. He says, in those days, the king... In those days, kings of the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. This stone shall break in pieces all the kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that that stone was cut from a mountain by no hands, and it broke into pieces this image. The, the metals, the materials, gold, silver, bronze, iron, iron, and clay represented, again, the world powers that were to come. And King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, they were the head of gold. And then there was the Persians and the, the silver, followed by the Greeks and Alexander the Great in bronze and Alexander's divided empire of iron. I wish I had a picture of this, but uh, I think you kind of get it. And the Roman Empire was the feet of clay. And from Daniel's time on, the Jews were, were looking for a savior who was to come, a stone that would strike the statue on its feet, crushing the earthly kingdom, setting up his eternal eternal kingdom and Jesus came as that stone maybe not quite as the Jews anticipated during that day but Jesus is that stone so what does it mean that Jesus is the the living stone what does that mean he is the living stone first and foremost because of his resurrection from the dead he is alive forevermore just like our hope uh, is a, a living hope because of Christ's resurrection from the dead, like he talks about earlier in chapter 1, so too is, is Christ the, the living stone because of his resurrection. And as the living stone, he is the one who provides life for us, spiritual life, eternal life, everlasting life. Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. And Peter says that you, believer, you are also like living stones because your faith in Christ connects you to Christ, the living stone. That means that all of the blessings and the benefits that Christ received are yours by faith in him. And like living stones, you are being built up into God's spiritual temple. In ancient times, temples were where people met with their God, right? Often these were extravagant, ordinate buildings. In Peter's day in the Middle East, most temples were made of stone, rock, because that's what was available to them. And as Peter talks of temples and stones, his, his readers would have called to mind some of those pagan buildings constructed to worship non-living deities, oftentimes actually made out of rock and stone, <laughs> But in contrast, he says, you are living stones in God's true spiritual temple in the church, being built up to worship and to glorify him. But being a, a living stone isn't a solo occupation. One brick, one stone by itself doesn't do much good. But when you join brick upon brick, cementing them with mortar, you build a wall or a structure like a building or a church, right? And believer, each of you are a part of the building of God's temple that he is building. 
You are God's temple, his dwelling place. You are his church. And all throughout history, temples were the place where the sacrifices were being offered, not just in the context of the Bible, but almost all religions had deities that needed sacrifices uh, to them, right? You'd have to bring a sacrifice to the temple, um, hoping for good rain, favorable winds for sailing, victory in battle, whatever it happened to be. However, because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians, we don't need to offer sacrifices, animal offerings to be slaughtered to worship anymore. None of you brought those this morning (laughs) to the altar, and we didn't do that here, right? But we do, as Peter says in verse 5, offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What do our spiritual sacrifices look like today? The author of Hebrews put it this way in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 15 and 16. He said, Through Christ, then, let us continually offer up sacrifices of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good or to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Praising God, doing good, sharing the good things that we possess, those are our spiritual sacrifices. The prophet Micah said, He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. These are the things that God requires of us. They might not seem like grand gestures. (laughs) However, the Lord often uses those ordinary, everyday actions of his people to accomplish his work in the world. So don't discount your donations to the local food pantry or the hour or week that you spend tutoring a child. Those sacrifices are beneficial for others, pleasing to the Lord. You are his spiritual temple offering spiritual sacrifices. Let's go on. The next bit we'll encounter in this text is the reality that the true spiritual temple, you all, are being built upon the rejected Christ, built upon the rejected Christ. And this is a truth that Peter, based on reality, the actual events that happened, and on the Old Testament scriptures themselves. In verse 6, he says, it stands in scripture. And you know, the Old Testament is often viewed in a, in a negative light. It's seen as old and outdated, antiquated, patriarchal, legalistic. Uh, there are sections that can frankly be boring. For example, the sections in Exodus where the Lord God is describing how to build the, the tabernacle and the exact measurements of the tabernacle. That frankly gets boring. Uh, there are parts that seem archaic, like the description of animal sacrifices and offerings that need to be made. And there are parts that are just plain odd as well, right? Like the, the regulations for ritual cleansing and purity. So how are we as, as New Testament Christians to view the Old Testament? We should understand the Old Testament in the same vein as Jesus and the apostles, like Peter, did. They viewed it as the unchanging word of God, and we should view it the same. And yes, there are sections in the Old Testament, like the genealogies, that are frankly quite boring, and there are sections that no longer apply to us today because Jesus has filled those requirements. But all of those texts are important because they point forward to Jesus. They point forward to the cross. They lay the groundwork for what he came to do. We can't rightly understand that without having first looked back at the Old Testament and understanding what was required there. 
But let's go on here. Jesus, it says, was rejected by men. Jesus was rejected by men. Rejection hurts, doesn't it? (laughs) Rejection hurts. Whether it's a homecoming proposal that got laughed off or a promotion that went to somebody else instead of you, rejection stings. Jesus Christ was rejected by men. And Peter calls that to mind a couple of times, calls that reality to mind a couple of different times in this text. Uh, Look, for example, at verse 4. He says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men. (laughs) This harkens back to the historical reality that Jesus was not well received by the leaders of his day who in in jealousy and disbelief handed him over to local Roman uh, authorities to be crucified. It reminds us of the crowds who gathered that morning on Pontius Pilate's doorstep and demanded that a murderer be released to them instead of Jesus. It reminds us of the folks who walked away from Jesus as he taught, unable to leave behind the worldly pleasures and and cares, unable to take up their cross and to follow him. Jesus Christ was rejected by men. However, in the sight of God, Peter says, Jesus was chosen and precious chosen and precious. He uses those uh, verses, those words, I'm sorry, a couple of times in these verses, uh, especially as he goes back and he quotes from Isaiah. Look at verses 4 and then verse 6. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. And then from verse 6, behold, I, the Lord, am laying in Zion a cornerstone, chosen and precious. The words choose or, or chosen means to, to pick one out of many, right? I had my bucket of rocks here and I chose a few of those as well, right? You're chosen the last on the team for flag football again and again, right? <laughs> After service this morning, you can choose which cookie to have, right? Or how many to have, right? You can choose. But the word choice or choose has a secondary meaning as well. In both Greek and English, something that is choice is something that is worthy to be selected, something that is excellent. A choice diamond, USDA choice beef, right? And I think the second meaning is how we should understand Jesus being chosen or choice in God's sight. It's not as if the Lord God had to arbitrarily pick one Savior out of many to send. No, before the foundation of the world, the triune God knew and planned for man's redemption. There was no decision to be made there. Jesus Christ, chosen and precious in God's sight, would redeem us. His being chosen and precious in God's sight speaks of his his glory, his majesty, his honor, his perfection, his worth, his greatness. He is the best of the best, the greatest of the great, the worthiest of the worthy. There is no one like Jesus Christ, chosen and precious. But again, not all would receive this chosen and precious Savior. Many would reject him. Many would stumble. Many would be disobedient. And we see that reality in verses 4 and 8. Those who are not a part of this spiritual house that had been built on the rejected Christ Jesus are those who stumbled and were disobedient. 
It gets harder to recover from stumbling and falling as life goes on, doesn't it? Our 15-month-old Cademan um, stumbles and falls multiple times every single day. Sometimes he cries, but most of the time he just picks himself up and goes right on with life, right? But as you get older, it's harder to get up, right, after those falls. It becomes more serious, more painful. Things tend to break. Spiritually speaking, Peter says that those who have rejected Christ have have stumbled over him. They cannot figure him out or believe in him. Those who have rejected Christ um, have, as as he puts it toward the end of verse 8, they have stumbled because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. And the last part of that verse, as they were destined to do, has caused many Christians to pardon the pun, to stumble and to fall, to trip. This verse, taken out of context from the whole of Scripture, makes it sound as if before the beginning, before the foundation of the world, before the cosmos were created, God arbitrarily decided which people would be saved and which people would be damned, condemned to an eternity in hell. Right, uh, Jean, you can be saved. Bruce, we'll save you too. Uh, Sheila, yeah, how about you as well? Casey, I think you're going to be good. And then, but for the others, <laughs> for Dale, no, you can't be saved. Right, Bruce, no, no way. Cliff, no way. Right, that's almost what it sounds like. You can take this verse to make out of context. And uh, there's a theological term for that teaching that's called double predestination. And, and don't bother to look in your Bibles because it's not there. <laughs> uh, you won't find it in Scripture. Those who hold to double predestination believe that those who are going to be saved are going to be saved no matter what. And those who are damned, condemned by the Lord uh, before. For the beginning will be damned and there is nothing that they can do to change that outcome. That's kind of where that double part comes from. God predestining, deciding beforehand both the saved and the condemned. And this teaching was, was taught by John Calvin, a French reformer who came after Martin Luther. And Calvin didn't believe that Luther had gone far enough in the reforming process and so Calvin went farther. Uh, Calvin's teachings are followed today by many Baptist, Presbyterian, and Reformed churches. There are a lot of issues, I believe, with this idea of double predestination. First and foremost, it causes you to wonder, am I really saved? Am I really one of God's elect? Did God really choose me? Can you leave you in a, in a sense of, of doubt, of worry, of spiritual depression? The second big issue that many have with double predestination is that it makes God, then, the cause of evil, the cause of sin, the cause of death. God has destined certain evil acts to occur, and there's nothing anyone can do otherwise. And the third issue that arises with double predestination, uh, and I think this is the the biggest one, is that it puts the simple truth of verses like John 3.16 to doubt. For God so loved God, the world. A Calvinist has to read that, no, for God so loved the elect, right? Only those who he really chose. And so if you're one who uh, has ever wrestled with this, is- this issue, it's, it can be a painful one. But it's also helpful to keep in mind the distinction between God's foreknowledge and his, his predestination. Throughout all of Scripture, we're told that God knows all things, right? If he didn't, he wouldn't be God. Daniel chapter 2, Daniel says, There's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. 
Luke chapter 12, Jesus says, even that the hairs of your head are numbered, God knows even that. The psalmist declares that God determines the number of stars. He gives them all their names. The psalmist also says that the Lord looks down from heaven and sees all the children of men. He observes all of their deeds. The author of Hebrews said that no creature is hidden from God's sight. All are exposed uh, to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. God knows all things. I don't think we'd question that. Just because the Lord knows all things, however, does not mean he causes all things. There's a difference. You, you are culpable, still responsible for your own actions and from the consequences that come as a result of those actions. Your sin condemns you. You are the cause of your own downfall, not the Lord. And we could read a lot of verses. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. There is no one righteous, no, not one. We could go on and on and on. All have turned aside. And I think as Christians, we can hold these true, tr- two truths that God knows all things before they are going to happen and that God is not the cause of evil. I think we can hold those two truths together at the same time and they're not contradictory. And when we think and when we ponder about this business of election and God choosing, we need to look for our answers, not in that secret, hidden mind of the Lord. That's impossible. But we need to find our election in the word of God, in his revealed word. And his word very simply points us to Jesus Christ who gave himself for all of us, for you. Romans 10.13 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul writes in 1 Timothy, God our Savior desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Again, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I'm so thankful for the simple, clear truths of Scripture. Amen? The simple truth of Scripture that, uh, that God's grace is available to each one of you, to all of you. Christ died for you in your place and on your behalf, shedding his blood for you. No matter your sin, then there is forgiveness for that. As far as the east is from the west, he promises to remove your sins from you. So receive that grace. Receive that mercy today. If you are doubting whether you're saved, don't look to yourself. Look to Jesus and what he has done for you. That is where you will find his grace and find his mercy. Look back at verse 8 again, if you have your Bibles open. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. When Peter is, is talking about those who have rejected Christ stumbling as they were destined to do, I, I think it's best to understand the stumbling in these verses as a natural consequence of, of disobeying the word, of rejecting Christ. Having disobeyed the word and having rejected Christ, the natural consequence then is what will be destined to happen is that you would stumble and fall. Brothers and sisters, God has not arbitrarily chosen some to be saved and some to be condemned. Your own sin condemns you. He offers his grace and his mercy to all. And if you haven't been made right with the Lord through Jesus Christ, let today be that day. He longs for you to come to him.
Amen. Yeah, forgive me if you think I've, I've waded in the weeds here of, <laughs> uh, down this rabbit trail of, of election and predestination, but I think it's, it's helpful to think of Christ's assurance for us. So let's look again at, at First Peter chapter 2. We've got one brief section to cover here. The spiritual temple built on the rejected Christ is being filled by God's people. It is being filled by God's people. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We'll pause there. Brothers and sisters, what is your identity in Christ? Who are you in Christ? Who are you as Christians? You are a holy people for his own possession. Unfortunately, we don't have time to go into each one of these things that we are. Uh, But what it boils down to is that believers, as the spiritual temple, you are a holy people for God's own possession. He has bought you by the blood of Christ, redeemed you, sanctified you to be his own. But then notice the purpose of all of this in verse 9, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you. That you may proclaim There are people who need to hear the Lord God and his excellencies and his awesomeness. And these people are not just out there in Uganda or Qatar who who need to hear, but there are people who are here, right here in in Glendon, in Ada, in Fargo. Wherever you are planted, that is your mission field. There are people who need to hear the gospel, the good news of Jesus, freely available. And so today, as you go from here and go out there into your places of work or school, don't be afraid to share those things. The spiritual temple built on the rejected Jesus Christ is being filled with God's people. And let me say this. As such, as the spiritual temple, brothers and sisters, you need to be with God's people. Let me say it this way. You belong here. (laughs) You belong here. And that's not just some seeker-friendly church growth slogan. (laughs) It's an honest assessment of a reality. You need to be surrounded and encouraged by others, other believers who will build you up and edify you. The world is full of influences that will tear you down and and destroy you, um, knock your faith out, steal your joy, upset your contentment. Brothers and sisters, each of you is a brick, is a spiritual stone in the temple of God. And you need to be here. The church will not be the same without you. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, again, I thank you for the day. Thank you for your word. Your word is truth. And Father, thank you for your salvation freely available to all. Thank you for the blood of your son, Jesus, that cleanses us from every sin. And this morning, as we have an opportunity to partake of Holy Communion and to receive grace and mercy and forgiveness in in a visible way, we are so thankful for that reminder. Lord, we pray that you be with us as we go from this place as well, that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into a marvelous light. Give us wisdom and boldness as we seek to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.